0: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Jan Doolittle-Wilson is back. Jan and I always have the same problem. We always talk for too long. We always lose ourselves in the conversation. And then I don't know what to edit out because it was all very interesting. And so here's what I did this week. There was a moment where I went off on this crazy literary theory about Dante's Inferno. I've gone ahead and cut that out, and I put it in the Bird's Eye View section. So if you don't want to hear me one long about that, just end this thing after Steve and I finish. Uh, Steve and I talk about one of the few episodes that you can just say the name of the episode, and everyone knows what you're talking about. He reacts this week to Hardhome. Without further ado, here is Jan... Doolittle Wilson. Jan Wilson, welcome back to Electric Bookaloo. Thank
3: you, Anthony. I'm so thrilled to be back. Thank you for inviting me again.
0: Yeah, I always look forward to this. Every now and again, I'll have a new guest on and I'll think, uh, oh, this is exciting. A new person I haven't talked to. They're going to have new insights about Game of Thrones and I'll, I'll get to learn something new about the book. But there's something nice... As well in a different way about talking, you know, talking about this book with someone who you've talked about three or four times already with.
3: Right. You can kind of fall into a rhythm. Yes. Um, And, you know, it was so funny. I was talking to my husband about this and I said, so Anthony invited me to do another podcast episode. And I said, do you think this will be our fourth one? Can I now call myself a regular contributor uh, think, to the podcast? I think, I, think I need that title, Anthony. I think that, regular, um, yeah,
0: that's how we will introduce you. Regular okay. friend of the podcast.
3: Friend of the podcast, regular contributor. Mm-hmm. I think with number four, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, I, I need to be maybe We've up We've upgraded you bit.
0: from repeat offender to regular <laughs> <laughs> contributor. Maybe that's
3: more accurate than repeat offender. <laughs> I don't know. But it's very nice to be back.
0: Yeah, good. Now, it's the other thing about it this, about having someone back on, who you've talked to a few times already, is that as you're reading the chapter, you think, oh, I wonder what channels think about this.
3: Same. I have so many questions for uh-huh. you about this chapter, uh-huh. because I, I know you a little bit now, and I'm thinking, I can see. I can see some things here that I think Anthony <laughs> might have some particular yeah. views on.
0: Yeah, that's right. All right, now let me pull up the... I was grading papers, and I have a bunch of Word documents open.
3: Uh, It's that time of year, papers.
0: And I need to find my synopsis. All right, here's my synopsis of the chapter. Ned is woken from a dream and is taken to King Robert. The king has been impaled by a boar and lies dying Mm. on his bed. Ned learns that Robert, while drunk commanded his hunting party to allow him to face the beast alone. Robert's spear missed the mark, and the boar impaled him deeply and ripped open his stomach. After multiple days on the road back to King's Landing, the wound has become mortal, and Ned can smell the death of it. Robert commands his attendants to leave and apologizes to Ned for being a bad king. He then commands Ned to write out his will of succession. Ned writes down the king's words, but omits the name Joffrey in favor of the phrase, my heir. The old friends say their goodbyes. Ned consoles Barristan and has a brief exchange with Varys. Then he is met by Renly on his way back to his room. Renly tells Ned to remove Cersei from her children and seize power. Ned refuses. Ned drafts a letter to Stannis and calls for Littlefinger. Littlefinger seems to know everything already, and so he also tells of course Ned. He does. Yes, of course. He, does. he also tells Ned to seize power and rule through Joffrey. Ned refuses. Instead, he gets Baelish to buy off the men of the city watch in case a battle is warranted. Baelish mocks Ned one more time before promising him the required soldiers. So Jan, do little Wilson what do you Hmm. want to talk about shall we talk about a character a theme a plot point or shall we climb once more the ladder of chaos
3: well i you know i think we're gonna have to talk about ned Mm. and some of his once again terrible choices (laughs) uh two things and then you can go you know whichever thread of this you want anthony but
0: sounds a lot like chaos jen
3: it's uh okay let's just go the chaos ladder (laughs) then um I reread the chapter a couple of times in you know preparation for our talk today Mm -hmm. and then I went back through and I thought okay I'm just going to hit every you know kind of Ned chapter and just kind of revisit some of this and I couldn't decide in which chapter Ned commits his greatest folly is it this chapter Mm. or is it the previous Ned chapter where he openly confronts Cersei in the courtyard yeah but I I think that's Right. The big theme that we have to kind of explore is just mistake after mistake that that yeah. Ned makes in this chapter. But then I also have to give just a shout out to Varys, because he is just the definition of passive aggressive, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, I just I was laughing so hard as I went back through. He He plays a relatively minor role mm-hmm. in this chapter. He's not the star. But what he does with the little time he has yeah. in this chapter is just beautiful. Just this line about, you know, Lancel. Oh, poor dear boy. I hope he's not too upset. Right? He just slips mm-hmm. in these wonderful moments where he says one thing, but you know, he means something entirely different. He and nobody opposite. does it.
0: That's oh,
3: nobody does it like Varys. So I enjoy him. And this well, chapter reminded me why I enjoy him.
0: Yes. I think that with Varys, especially with this chapter... You really have to pay attention to what he's saying because he, de- like you said, he doesn't talk often. Yeah. But if you don't carefully look at his words, you will miss <laughs> the plot entirely. You
3: will miss the plot because he so rarely says what he actually means. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's true for a lot of characters, but nobody quite does it the way Ferris does. He doesn't say what he means, but he says exactly what he means at the same time. That's right. Does that kind of make sense?
0: It it absolutely makes sense. I mean, if you were to l- contrast him with Littlefinger, Littlefinger yes. hi- all, it also conceals, but he conceals by being so blunt yes. that it's off putting, right? Yes. Whereas Varys is he's like he's like he's mastered subtlety to the point where you're like, oh geez, now I gotta think about what you're saying like three times over
3: yes to figure
0: out what because I know you're trying to tell me something
3: the juxtaposition I think that's that's exactly right Anthony between Varus and Littlefinger who share a lot of similarities uh-huh. but the way they go about it so you're right I mean I think Varus carefully kind of codes what he says in this kind of passive aggressive way where he's definitely making a suggestion about what he says, but he kind of goes all around it. Mm -hmm. And then Littlefinger, he knows exactly who he's talking to when. And he just comes out with really just the naked truth, but he knows that what he says will be interpreted a certain way, depending on the audience. So he tells Ned exactly what he thinks here. He doesn't really... Mm -hmm. speak in code at all right he basically just tells Ned, this is what you should do this is what i think knowing that ned's not going to do it so it's not a risk to tell him the truth
0: that's right you know the the third name that we could throw in here for this chapter is renly
3: yes oh renly
0: because i i think that renly has had some interesting speaking parts in this book but for the most part He's held his cards very close to his chest. Yes. Yes. You know, every now and again, he'll say something that will either be kind of a humorous release valve, or he'll say something blunt about his brother. But for the most part, unless you've been carefully watching Renly, you don't know that he has designs for the throne.
3: Right. You wouldn't guess it really until this moment.
0: And so his strategy was simply to say nothing to anyone until the time was perfect. Right. And then kind of spring into action. Spring into action. And of course, it's so surprising to Ned that it doesn't actually work. And who knows if it would have worked anyway. Right. Um, All of these creatures, these political creatures are kind of hiding in plain sight. Yes. And each has something of a different approach to Ned or maybe Ned perceives them slightly in different ways. But I love that each of these three characters has a play in this chapter.
3: And the other thing that really strikes me, this is such a fascinating chapter. Not only do we just get further insight into, we know Ned at this point, we know exactly where Ned's going. Mm -hmm. We are screaming the whole time because we, we can see the mistakes (laughs) unfolding, but it's, it's kind of the theme of the book, right? We see the game in full play mm-hmm. here in ways that maybe we haven't before because we have so many actors at the same time. And you're right. They're all coming at the game in a different language, a different strategy. Mm-hmm. But the one constant is they know Ned. Ned. <laughs> Ned <laughs> has been Ned from day one. Yeah. They know exactly what his his vulnerabilities are. And he doesn't they, know
0: them at he
3: all. He doesn't know them. And he just mm-hmm. is on this stubborn path. If I just do the right thing, mm-hmm. it will come out right in the end. And he is way in over his head.
0: Okay. But I'm gonna I'm I agree with everything you just said. I'm gonna quibble with one little thing. Okay, go. All right. So in this chapter Ned doesn't do the right thing. Mm. I mean, I guess in terms of like just a straightforward approach, he yeah. decides to lie.
3: He does.
0: And there's actually there's actually three instances of Ned's troubled conscience of of times when he's decided to to what he what he thinks is a, a necessary lie, but it really bothers him. Yeah. So we have this Memory of Lyanna, and of course, we're not supposed to know yet what the lie of Jon Snow is, but it still continues to trouble him. It haunts him. It haunts his dreams, right? Right. And then he does this thing with Robert where he doesn't write down what he says. Yeah. He writes down my heir instead of writing down Joffrey, and he lets Robert believe that he had written down Joffrey. And then the third thing is, of course... He decides not to tell Robert about any of this. Right. He lets Robert go to his grave saying, you know, take care of my children. And he knows, okay, well, I know you think you mean Cersei's children. And I'm going to tell you that I'll take care of them like they're my own. But the the faces that run through Ned's he- head at that point are like Gendry and Mia and Bara. Yeah. You know, these are, he knows that to take care of Ned's children really means to take care of his bastards. Right. And in all of those ways, Ned is choosing to deceive. So I, yeah, I guess I just want to say he's trying to be deceptive. You know? He is. <laughs> he's he He's trying is, you to know. play the game to the best of his ability. Um, but it's not because of the lack of trying. It's not that he's just like, I'm going to tell the truth at all costs. That's that is part of his problem. But the problem I think the bigger problem is is that that's his default setting and so when he does try to lie, he's just he's like a guy who's trying to dance for the first time. He's just not good at it.
3: He's not good at it. I was laughing Anthony when you were talking because my I was going to uh my counterpoint was going to be, well, in the scene where he promises to take care of the children for him, it's not really a lie because he's thinking of the other children. So (laughs) he can say, but as my mother used to say, if you know what the person means, it's still a lie. (laughs) If you know that the meaning is one thing and you choose to take a different meaning, that's still a lie. So you're right. Um, He's trying everything he can to get around the lie. Right. But he knows it's still a deception. He knows it's a betrayal. And then really the greatest betrayal is writing to Stannis, right? Right. he knows that Robert wants him to protect Joffrey. He wants him to be regent. And yet he knows the truth that Joffrey shouldn't be on the throne. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to really kind of destroy what Robert wanted with his dying breath and write to Stannis and claim that Stannis is the rightful heir. Um, So you're right. There are these deceptions, but the fact that he is such a noble, honest man Mm I think Littlefinger, I'm flipping to the page, um, Littlefinger, I think, has the best line, as he often does, you know, when he when he speaks in these chapters, sure, but sure. the line where he says you wear your honor like a suit of armor, Stark, mm-hmm. yeah. you think it keeps you safe, but all it does is weigh you down and make it hard for you to move.
0: I underline and I think that, that captures
3: what you just said right? That he has this suit of armor, he has this moral code. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, if he steps outside of that a little bit in the examples that you gave, it's the honor itself that still weighs him down. And either plagues right. him with guilt, yeah, or just makes him really, really bad at the game, which we know day one, Ned doesn't like the game, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to play the game, he has no interest in the game. And yet he is at the center of a game that he doesn't really want really I was getting ready to say he doesn't understand the game. Do you think that's fair? That he does he understand it? He just doesn't want to participate, or does he not fundamentally understand the rules of the game? What do you think?
0: Hmm. I think I have an answer. To that let me let me say one more thing about the line that you. I wanted to. Yeah. Go talk ahead. Talk about that line that Littlefinger said. I wrote down Vardis Egan in the margin. Oh. Uh-huh. When, when he said that, because. Just a few chapters previous, we had this trial by combat between Braun, Mm -hmm. who is this sort of cutthroat. You know, he's this free riding guy. He doesn't wear armor. He, you know, he's going to fight dirty. Right. Yeah. And then you've got this knight of the veil, Servardus Egan, who's like gleaming from head (laughs) to toe with armor. And of course, he can't fight. He can't fight in it.
3: Yeah, that's a really great analogy.
0: The fact that Braun is willing to like do anything to win, making him a bad knight, right? He's not a knight. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that Braun is willing to do anything to win m- gives him an advantage. And then it's almost like the, the honorable knight is never going to be able to match up. Yeah. Uh, whatever his skill level, however strong his armor is, there's going to be chinks and the killer's going to win. Yeah. So I thought that was a great little sort of callback, I think. Oh,
3: yeah. That's great.
0: In answer to your question, I think I've been thinking about this a lot. I think that Ned is under the assumption that people are lying and playing the game. But deep down inside, they will feel shame if you expose mm-hmm. their sins because that's how he feels. Yeah. So he said, you know, he thinks going to the God'swood and revealing to Cersei that he's he knows the truth, that she's gonna like blush, and run because, uh, you know, because <laughs> of yeah. course that's that's what any good woman should do, uh, you know, when when her sexuality is revealed or something like that. Yeah. Um. I mean, I guess I just feel like he doesn't know that de- that way, 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 way down deep, Littlefinger the core of his personality is a political creature. There's nothing that's underneath the surface that is a man of honor.
3: Yeah.
0: And I think that he misjudges people because of that. I think that he thinks, all right, everyone's doing what I'm doing. They might be better at it, but deep down there, there is this core sense of honor that they will adhere to. And he's wrong. He's just wrong. wrong. There's nothing, there's nothing underneath Robert He's a glutton all the way down. He's a fool all the way down.
3: I was going to use Robert, though, as maybe a um, a way of kind of affirming that point uh-huh. of view for Ned to a certain extent, because Robert does feel shame. You know, in this chapter, you kind of see it when he admits that, OK, sending the assassin, you know, the assassin after Daenerys uh-huh uh I guess that was kind of bad you know he's he's able to admit that on his deathbed right. um there there's a previous chapter where you know he confronts him with the assassination plot and you know Robert it, with, with his bluster and his purple face and his rage Ned consents that there's still that conscience in there somewhere you know mm. there's still that Robert I used to know so I think you do get hints of that you know from Robert here but
0: interesting
3: you know very few people outside of Ned and and maybe even Robert operate that way. Right. And I think you're right. It's Ned's inability to really, really understand or grasp that. The other thing I wanted to say about Cersei, I was really struck by, again, is it is it naivete? Is it he expects everyone else to kind of have what he has, you know, nobility, duty, honor, but he has this conversation with Cersei and not to, you know, keep going back to previous chapters, but in rereading this, I was really struck with how, you know, he confronts her about the parentage. He confronts her about Jamie being the father of the children. And she just doesn't even miss a beat. Yes, of course. Thank the gods, you know, thank the gods. They're not Roberts. Mm -hmm. And he is so surprised by her reaction. She doesn't have shame. She doesn't have any hesitancy. She doesn't try to get out of it or make excuses. It's just, Nope. They're Jamie's Thank the gods. And he says to her, what could this man have done to you to make you hate him so much? And it's like, really? Really mad? You, sure. you haven't been watching the way these two interact. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying Cersei's blameless by any means, mm. but just the utter disrespect that Robert has for Cersei, mm-hmm. the utter disdain, the physical abuse. And then he has the nerve to look at, look at Cersei and say, what could he have done to make you hate him? It just, I think it gives insight into just Ned's, um, you know, he, he often says, Robert just turns away from things he doesn't want to see. Well, I think Ned just doesn't see so much of the time Mm -hmm. because he has maybe this armor, you know, that you mentioned, what do you think about that? I just, I was really struck by that conversation where I thought, really, Ned, you're asking Cersei why she hates Robert.
0: Yeah. It's interesting.
3: I defend Cersei a lot on this podcast. I, I'm not sure why.
0: You do. I wonder <laughs> if.
3: We need to do a Cersei chapter when Cersei comes into play.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. I have never felt any sense of sympathy for Robert.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's hard. It's hard.
0: Because I think he's acting foolishly, and he's but he's smart enough to know that he's acting foolishly. But yeah. he continues to do it. Every move he makes beggars the kingdom. Every move he makes makes things worse. With he doesn't really see Ned for who he is. He doesn't really see Cersei for who she is. Yeah, and he doesn't really care. He do, he really doesn't care. Nor um, does
3: he really love Lyanna. In my opinion, he barely will, knew her. Yeah, it's oh, a possession. Okay. that's
0: interesting. I think he uh, thinks he does. Right?
3: He he thinks he does. Here's a a woman he barely spent any time with, Mm -hmm. right? They are betrothed. I think it's a matter of somebody took what is mine and it has fueled all of his hate and anger and desire for revenge. It Mm -hmm. fuels his hatred of the Targaryens. It it, it doesn't allow him to show any affection uh, toward Cersei. Mm -hmm. Everything kind of comes from that. But right. I don't think the love is really even genuine. I think it's Robert saying, again, somebody took what was mine. And he yeah. has really no interest in being king. He's a terrible king. Uh, but he wants Ned to come, right, to, to Keen's Landing. So Ned can kind of do all the king things. And he can just, what does yeah. he say, whore and drink and, you exactly. know, be Robert. <laughs> he wants to keep being right. Robert.
0: And yet, I think that there is a sense that Cersei has a lot more power in that relationship than anyone has really acknowledged. I think Under-read. it's. I think it's easy to point to Robert to as look, this guy's abusive, this guy's a philanderer, this guy's foolish. He is the in in all of those ways. It's true. He's a horrible king. He's a horrible husband. And yet, Cersei has so much power. She's so much smarter. She knows exactly how to like she knows where all of the chinks in his armor are and she'll yes. wait for the exact right time to like to like really question his masculinity or, you know, declare that he can't fight in the <laughs> yes. in the melee. Yes. Because she knows that he's gonna you know, he he knows he's gonna wanna fight in the melee if if, if she says that. She's just thinking circles around him the entire book and and that little bit of it makes me think "Mm, Cersei's got a lot more power than she's given credit for here
3: she does she absolutely does and you know we were saying before how one of Ned's biggest flaws is he's just so easy to read right Mm -hmm. Ned is who he is and once you spend five minutes in his company you know exactly who Ned is Ned's Probably not going to change, yeah. right? I think you're right. There are a couple little deceptions here and there, but Ned's Ned, yeah. And you know that makes that makes his situation extremely dangerous because he is so easy to read. People know it ten moves ahead of Ned; they know exactly what Ned's going to do. It's why it's not a risk for Littlefinger mm. to tell him the truth. It's why you know I, I kept putting in my notes, "Wow, Cersei, uh, you didn't leave." I think of like you said, a rational person if they're confronted with you know, I'm going to tell Robert and yeah. you better run because he's going to come after you. I, I think a, 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 um, I don't want to say normal, a, a person, uh, in most situations I think would flee. Mm-hmm. She sticks around because she knows, I think she knows Ned, right? She knows yeah. that Ned will not have the heart to tell Robert on his deathbed, the truth. Um, she, she has this planned out 10 chess moves ahead.
0: You know, everybody or knows She Ned. knows that, Look, if I flee, that's an admission of guilt. It's an
3: admission of guilt. I'm going to stand
0: firm. mm -hmm. I'm going to call this guy a liar. And who's going to, you know, it's my word against his. And And my narrative is stronger. I can't
3: lose. (laughs) I will not lose. Right. Yeah. But going back to your point about Robert, you know, Robert, I think, has the same flaw in some ways, not the nobility part. Right but Robert's so easy to read too. Mm -hmm. I mean, Robert is who Robert is and hasn't really changed since he he was a boy. And so you're right. It, you know, Cersei, who is pretty crafty in her own right, um, because she knows him so well, she knows exactly what his weaknesses are. Mm -hmm. Uh, She knows exactly, you know, like you said, if I tell him one thing, he'll do the other. So Mm -hmm. I will tell him this one thing and it puts him obviously in a really dangerous position. And we know what happens to Robert at the end of this chapter. Uh, It spells the death of him, right? Yeah. So I think Ned and Robert are quite a bit alike in that way.
0: One more thing about Ned's deception. Yeah. He has this line where he says, the lies we tell for love. Like Mm -hmm. he thinks that after he's had that exchange with Robert, he says, the lies we tell for love. And to me, that sounded like Jamie. Yes, when I he pushes that Brand too. out the out the window, he says, "The things we do for love."
3: Yes, yes.
0: So yes. I thought that was a very interesting parallel. I mean, these two these two guys couldn't be more different, and yet they have a very you know that line almost echoes Jamie.
3: And maybe we can explore that, Anthony, because I thought the exact same thing as you. I put in my notes in in the margin. Ooh, this sounds similar to that moment at the window, right? Mm-hmm. But think about how often Ned and Jamie are deliberately juxtaposed. Not just in this chapter, but really throughout the book and mm-hmm. even later, right? Yeah. Um, so we get that moment in the throne room, right? Jamie's on the throne. Ned comes in after you mm-hmm. know the, the defeat of the Targaryens. Um, there's a chapter, right? Titled the lion and the wolf. I mm-hmm. mean, th- there are so many moments where these two characters are deliberately. Well, even if you go back to the, previous chapter right the the previous ned chapter the one before this one where he's having that conversation with cersei and she says what would you do for love and he thinks back after she admits right that that Mm -hmm. basically they or jamie pushed Bran out the window what would you do to protect your children and ned has that moment of doubt where he thinks what would i do if the lives of my children were at stake would i do something horrible and
0: And i remember writing he also thinks what would cat like? I know what I would do.
3: What would cat do? Cat would <laughs> John, do like yeah. ten
0: times worse. Like that's his view yeah. of that's his view of her because of the way she's treated Jon Snow. Because but you're right, and John. then you actually have those two square off outside of a brothel.
3: Yes, the and big fight.
0: Yes, the big fight. So you, yes, that's right. You always it, it's pretty common to see Ned and Jamie juxtapose in that way.
3: And then we learn, right? We learn later. Why Jamie does what he does? Um, we know early on, you know, Jamie mm. pushes Bran to protect Cersei, right? But we also learn a lot more about why he did what he did, you know, to the Mad King, um, breaking his oath, and right, um, which which continue. You know, I love Jamie. Um, it continues to just plague Jamie, and it he's kind of haunted by that. Maybe in the same way that Ned is haunted by Lyanna, you know, the promise right. he has to make to Lyanna, which you could, uh, people just poke that bear again and, again and again, like, oh, well, you, you did the same thing in your marriage. You know, people are constantly raising this. Well, you've got this code of nobility and honor around you, Ned, but you, you cheated on Kat. You had a, you know, quote unquote bastard son. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can just see, he can't tell them the truth. He can't yeah. ever reveal. Well, actually, no, I didn't. He can't ever say that, but you know, it just rankles him. Well, um, and you
0: have that parallel with Jamie because the, the yes. reputation doesn't match the truth. Yeah. Ned's reputation is that he's a philanderer. Yeah. Not like serial, but he's got a bastard. And he's this is an bastard, otherwise yeah. cheek in his honor or whatever. Right. And, of course, Jamie's the Kingslayer. Yes. Where, uh, you know, and that's actually true that he did. And you could argue, you know, whether that actually betrayed a vow or not. Um. But the truth of the matter is, is that he saved the city. But that bit of his reputation is not what defines his legacy. Right. I think Jamie learns at a very young age, like he's 16 years old when he learns that it's impossible to live up to these vows. Yes. These vows are impossible. I can't obey the father of the realm and obey my own father at the same time. I can't save the city and not kill the king. So these vows are bullshit. And now I know. Now I know. And I'm going to live accordingly. Ned never has that crucible moment. He never decides, well, all of my honor or all my code or whatever is bullshit. He still really believes it. He does. And it has worked for him until now, you know? Yeah.
3: And the only other time, you know, heartbreaking, again, you can just, of course, in hindsight, we know what happens to Ned, but, you know, even if you're reading this for the first time, you just kind of see this falling into place. You know, going back to that chapter with Cersei where he has that moment of, oh, okay, what would I do? You know, what have I done to protect the people I love? And then, of course, that last straw, right? The moment where he really goes beyond his own moral code is when he confesses to treason yeah. to save Sansa, yeah. right? That's really the moment where he is finally confronted with, okay, I am willing to 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 lie and take these steps and completely debase myself in this way because I'm doing it for somebody I love to protect mm-hmm. somebody I love, and you know you you see these moments with different characters where they have to make that decision. And it's really fascinating to see the different ways that plays out. And then the other thing I was thinking about too, is, you know, when you were talking about Jamie, do I keep my vow to uphold and protect the institution or do I protect the people? And there's a great line. I I don't think it's in this chapter. It was one of the previous chapters I was looking at where I think it's with the Dothraki. And Daenerys was talking about how, you know, with the Kingsguard, it doesn't really matter who is king. If you are Kingsguard, you protect the king. And it doesn't matter who that king right. is so much yeah, so yeah. that Barristan, you know, fought for the tar- Targaryens and now he's working for Robert, right? It's the institution right. with the Dothraki. It's the person. <laughs> and I thought how that's a neat bit of foreshadowing, you know, in those early chapters with Danny where she's learning about the Dothraki and how different they are from, you know, the Kingsguard of, of, uh, of Westeros. Um, and I'm not sure where I'm going with this. We're still on the you know, ladder of chaos. But I thought it, it do- is kind of reflective in some ways of how different characters, where they see their loyalty. Mm-hmm. Is it to family, person, blood, or is it to these higher ideals that, that should go beyond mm-hmm. these personal relationships? And Ned thinks he's in the former, but actually ends up in the
0: latter. You know, Selmy is a, is actually another guy in this chapter who mm. is dealing with some contradictions because the way it's described is that, you know, Robert's reeling from being drunk in the saddle. Yeah. And he tells everyone to step back. He's going to take the the boar. Selmy knows this is a bad idea. His job is to save the king's life. Yeah. And yet his, his job is also to obey the king. And there's no way he can do both. He chooses to obey the king rather than to Mm. save the king's life. Right. And he just feels horrible about it. And I think it, it just goes back to the impossibility that a lot of these characters are in, and I think Ned more than anyone. Yeah. I think you're right. We've seen a series of bad decisions on Ned's part. But in each case, the decision makes sense to Ned and that's why this is such a wonderful he's I I have come to appreciate his character more and more since I've done this rewatch because it's true to his character
3: yeah
0: you know everything he does you think well it's actually from a from a Ned point of view this is actually the most Nedish thing you could do right now (laughs) you know if he starts playing chess at this stage of the game you're going to think that's not Ned. He's, he's, Ned's the checkers guy. Come on. (laughs) To be true to the character, George, Ned is true to his character. Like no other character in this book. And so he makes sense. He makes sense. I I get a little comfort that Ned's always going to be Ned all the way down.
3: It's true. I, I go back and forth on Ned. Um, I think part of my impressions of Ned are maybe at this point inevitably influenced by just Sean Bean's interpretation because I love Sean Bean so much so it's kind of hard at this point right Mm -hmm. I think with so many of our characters to separate actor from you know book character but if you just you know kind of go back to book Ned you're right I mean you can't Maybe we're expecting too much of Ned. It's frustrating that you get to this part where you think he's talking to, um, uh, is it, I think it's the conversation with Littlefinger. Uh, Is it Littlefinger? Yeah, this is 428 Mm. uh, where, you know, Ned again, have you learned nothing from Littlefinger? Have Mm. you no honor? Of course he has no honor. You're just now learning this. And then, you know, Littlefinger, of course, very sardonically, says, oh, a shred, you have a surely, shred of right? honors
0: like, yeah, I've got a, I've got a shred. <laughs> got
3: a shred, right? Um, and then, you know, Littlefinger spells it out for him and says, okay, think 10 moves ahead, right? Uh-huh. You're right. Ned is checkers and, you know, Littlefinger uh-huh. is chess. Littlefinger is saying, look at the big picture because put Stannis on the throne. Great. That might be the right thing to do. That might be the noble thing to do, but think about the consequences. If you put Stannis on the throne, um, he's going to start a war. He's going to go after all of the enemies. He's going to go, you know, Tywin's not going to allow this this slight on his daughter. He's going to come into the war. Think about all the people who are going to die. Um, You can avoid all of that if you just stay quiet. You put Joffrey Mm. on the throne. You support the Lannisters. And then four years down the road, we can decide what happens if you just think about the big picture. And Mm. Ned just can't or won't do that. Yeah. And then
0: Littlefinger says, okay, it's Stannis and war. That's what you're choosing. You're choosing Stannis and war. And for Ned, it's like, this is not a conversation. There's." Stannis is the rightful heir. We do whatever it takes to put this guy's ass on the throne. Yeah, you're right.
3: He says, Stannis is the heir. Nothing can change it. There's no seeming to this. This is what we do. And don't you love where Littlefinger says, oh, I forgot I was talking to a Stark. Never mind.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's right.
3: (laughs) It's one of my favorite lines in the chapter. Sorry, I forgot I was talking to a Stark.
0: I think at every step we can second guess Ned. I think that at the very beginning it's like, no, don't go south. This is bad. You, you're not. You're not suited for the south. But his. What's but the Cat- line?
3: No Stark who has ever yes, gone south yes. ends up in a good way, or, or I'm paraphrasing badly, but yeah, that's no right. Stark should ever go south.
0: And yet, Catelyn's kicking him out the door.
3: Yep.
0: And Robert, his king and best friend, is saying, "I need you." Yep. And so, what is he to do? So it's like, of best course, that's do a do. bad decision. But what is he to do? And I think I could say that for every single one of these decisions. Yeah. Yes. Yes, quitting your office as hand of the king over this assassination attempt. It's probably not the right thing to do. But what yeah. is he to do? I mean, I think that that's I think that that's what makes him compelling to me. It's like every single time I can see it's a bad decision and yet if I think about it, I think yeah, but would I have the, you know, would I be smart enough to do something different in this situation? If I, you know, I I race like Ned, I think like Ned, this is probably what I would do. It's a, it's going to end up with my death, but this is exactly what I'm going to do.
3: Okay. Let me play devil's advocate for just a mm-hmm. second, because you made me think of this. And I've also thought about this on my own. Um, do you think there's just a bit of, I want no part of this. I wash my hands of it. I just want to go back to Winterfell and consequences be damned aspect to Ned here. Because two things, two things to back up what I'm saying. And again, this is a bit bit of devil's advocate on my part. I'm not sure I'm totally convinced of this, but if you look at 427, right? He's saying, okay, great. Wrote the letter to Stannis. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Um, the new king would choose his own hand. I'm free to go home. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to Kat in her bed. Um, I can hear Rick on play. brand's laughter. There's just this incredibly... It's heartwarming. You know what his desire is, but it's just this incredibly naive, great, all I have to do is write the letter, Mm -hmm. Stannis will come in, I can go home, right? Knowing, I think he knows this is going to be terrible, right? It's going to lead to war. If he stays in that position, he hates the throne, he doesn't want the power, he doesn't want to stay in King's Landing, but if he does stay... He can avoid all of this, right? He can use yeah, his moral influence for good, right? It, it, that's kind of where I'm going. Is it is it an incredibly selfish thing to do?
0: That's right. He's been wanting to get back to Winterfell since the day he got there, right?
3: The day he got there. You no, know, even when he throws Stannis, his hand pin at at Robert, yeah. there's a bit of relief there. Like, thank God we can go home now. Right. Right. Is it selfish?
0: Yeah, it's a good point. He certainly does want to go home. I think that Stannis is maybe the quickest path home. Yeah. And yet, I don't think that he thinks that it's going to turn into war. I, I think, I don't think that he's convinced Cer- that Cersei's going to do exactly what Renly says he's going to do. Yeah. I think he thinks he, he just have he's continually underestimating Cersei. He thinks okay well I've got it here it's, it's a piece of paper I'm the ruler <laughs> and yeah. and uh it doesn't matter what Cersei says because uh because I got this I got the seal of the king in my hand right now and I know the truth and as soon as Stannis is here it will all gets sorted out he really does think that that's the right not just the right thing to do but what will happen yeah he doesn't think that uh, that Cersei's going to seize a throne through Joffrey in the next, what, like three hours? Right. All right. So he, because he doesn't believe that, I don't think he's making a decision based on the idea that, okay, well, this is the, actually the fastest way for me to get home. I think he thinks this is what has to be done. And thank the gods, I'm going yeah. home. <laughs>
3: i'm gonna be have no part in this yeah stannis will save the day you know i'm laughing anthony when you said the piece of paper the, the faith they put yeah in a piece of paper which in normal times that would have been true the keen seal it mm-hmm. was witnessed it's the keen's hand right
0: again underestimating Cersei, within right?
3: two seconds she takes that scroll and just wraps it up yeah we're playing by a completely different set of rules now and even you know even sell me oh <gasps> You just tore up the scroll? How dare yeah. how could you do that? Those were the Keen's words, and she's like, I don't care. <laughs> we're in a completely new game now. Where the things that used to mean something mean nothing now.
0: I don't know if it's in the books. <laughs> I have to look at it. there's a scene in the show, it's later in the later seasons when Cersei like tears up a letter or something and Tyrion says you know, you've just really mastered the art of tearing up paper.
3: <laughs> yes. What is that? <laughs> I, I can't
0: remember. I don't um... remember either, but when she tears <laughs> it up, I immediately thought, like, oh, uh, I can't see her tear it <laughs> up without laughing at Tyrion's joke.
3: It, I'm, I think I'm harder on Ned than you are, but there were just so many times, not just in this chapter, but previous chapters, where I just wrote, Ned, do something, act yeah. on something. Yeah. Do you think that he. Do you think that he lacks agency? Do you think that he just, if I don't act, maybe things will be okay? Um, is he driven by, you know, don't act too much so I can get back to Winterfell? What do you think is just? What do you think is driving him here? he, he lack, just doesn't.
0: He, yeah, he might lack a certain imagination. I think that some of the things that are happening and happening to Ned have never happened before. Yeah. You know, you walk in with a, a seal of the king. You you know you've got the law on your side. It's in it's in the plain sight of everyone else in the room. Everyone knows that you've got the law on your side. The king's signature and seal are right here. Um, you know who? What what queen has ever torn up a piece of paper like that before? I think he just lacks a little bit of imagination, and he's thinking, well, that's never happened before. It's probably not going to happen. Someone like Littlefinger would think. Let me think of every possible thing that could happen. Yeah. And yes. then I'm going to think, will they benefit from that? Because if they do, they might try it. And what would I do? He's just – Ned is not going to imagine the worst in people yeah. in the in the same way. And maybe that's – maybe that ends up being his downfall. I, I, the other thing well, is that his – he has such a moral aversion Yes. To bringing children into politics. And so when Renly comes up to him and says, here's what you need to do. I'm going to give you a hundred swords. We're going to go separate Cersei from her children. That is going to be the smartest thing to do at this moment. And as readers were thinking, yeah, maybe that is the smartest thing to do at this moment. But Ned's thinking, how dare you suggest (laughs) that I bring a child into this Horrible political situation. Robert's not the the we need to honor Robert's last wishes. You know. Yeah. So that's his red line. We know that's his red line. He doesn't want to kill Daenerys. He doesn't right. agree with what happened to the Targaryen children. He hates that that's part of Robert's legacy. And there's no way in hell he's going to separate Joffrey from Cersei that's like the red line in the sand that he's not going to cross
3: right I mean it's his entire arc right the the idea he knows he knows exactly what Robert would do Mm -hmm. if he found out about John. he knows exactly he won't so much so that he won't even tell Kat the truth Mm -hmm. he is so afraid of that secret getting out and of John being vulnerable and of John being hurt that even to his own wife, right? There's so many times I thought, just tell Kat, just tell Kat, right? <laughs> but he's so worried. He knows exactly yeah. what will happen if that gets out. But going back to your other point about this, again, this moral code and just, you know, he's, he's been in King's Landing for a while. You would think that he would not be this naive, but when Littlefinger's having that conversation with him about um, we're gonna need more soldiers, we need more protection. And Ned says, well, let's just get the city watch. And Littlefinger says, "Yeah, we could get the City Watch. Uh, they'll be loyal to me because I pay them." There are two interesting things about that. One is Ned's just assuming the City Watch will be loyal because that's their job, right? right. They're there to protect the city and they're there to protect the kingdom. And Littlefinger is saying, "Actually, no. They'll be loyal to whomever pays their salary, and right. that's and me." And I'm going to the pay way. them
0: double just to make and sure. And I'll pay them
3: double. Right. And then that should have been Ned's clue that, oh. Littlefinger controls the city watch. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous because right. Littlefinger is somebody not to be trusted, right? And again, I know it's easy in hindsight to say, "Oh, Ned, Ned." <laughs> the minute Littlefinger said, "I'm the one who pays their salary,"
0: mm-hmm.
3: whoa, right? And that's exactly well. What I guess then. that's
0: his other sin is that he trusts Littlefinger because he trusts Kat
3: because he trusts Kat.
0: Yeah. He because he thinks this is my my wife's childhood friend. I don't like him. In fact, he like he mocks me every single time we talk. <laughs> right? Yes. Uh and yet he's thinking all right, Renly, I'm not I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go talk to Littlefinger. Like Varys is giving advice. Renly's giving it advice. Uh, he he thinks, oh, no, no, I need to turn to Littlefinger. He, I know what needs to be done, and I need Littlefinger's help. And he's totally blind to Littlefinger's true nature. Yeah. Um, which is hard to forgive, and yet... It's like Littlefinger's dancing around everyone, you know?
3: But Littlefinger tells him how many times what his true nature is. Every single time. (laughs) I mean, even the conversation where he says, we can't do that. That's treason. And Littlefinger replies, only if we lose. I mean, that tells Ned everything he needs to know. So Littlefinger, again, knowing Ned is...
0: He does. Well, the fact that Littlefinger has known <laughs> the entire time—he knows yes. the entire time—Cersei's secret, and this has been sort of Ned's been hit going into what like dozens of brothels. He hates—he hates it. Yes. He knows why. The, John Arryn's like Ned's dad, you know. I
3: know John Arryn raised
0: him, and here this guy Littlefinger is has known the whole time, and he's just playing coy. I mean that Ned should be angry. I mean that that's that's the thing. I think Ned should just be completely livid, uh, Littlefinger, for withholding that from him.
3: But you know, here's again the thing that it's so beautiful about Littlefinger knowing Ned the way he does. Littlefinger doesn't really hide much of anything with Ned. Mm. He basically tells him exactly who he is. He tells him exactly, really, what he's planning. Mm-hmm. I mean, he drops in these hints, knowing that Ned is just way too obtuse <laughs> to really pick up on it. But he, for example, the part where, you know, Ned says, oh, by the way, I found out the big secret. The children are Jamie's. And Littlefinger says, how shocking. <laughs> he doesn't even pretend to be surprised. Exactly. You know, he doesn't even try with Ned. It's like, this guy's adult. I'm going to say whatever I think, because it's just not either going to sink uh-huh. in or Ned won't see it because he's too noble. Mm. It, it's so fascinating. To to revisit their conversations, mm-hmm. little finger is telling you everything you need to know. Ned, mm-hmm. it's just what you choose to hear or what you choose to believe, and it's just it's beautiful. You know, just the utter lack of oh really? You know, mm-hmm. sh- clearly showing Ned that he knew all along. If Ned had just dug a little further, he probably could have gotten to oh, and by the way, <laughs> I know about John Aaron too, right?
0: He does it so well. I mean, he does it I, really. We're finding out how good he is. I mean, we, yes. I think with Littlefinger, it goes back to what we just learned um, in a a previous chapter is that he lost the woman that he loves, Kat, to a Stark. A Stark. And it was because he wasn't strong enough. He wasn't rich enough. He didn't have a high enough social status. And I think that really is his origin story. He feels like, you know what? That's never going to happen to me again. I'm going I'm going to play the long game. I'm going to become one of the most powerful uh, people in the kingdom. And eventually I'm going to get my revenge against the Starks. And if I can't have Cat, I'm going to have Cat version 2, you know. Yeah. In in Sansa, I that- I think that that origin story for Littlefinger really drives his whole narrative and in that way here Ned is, he's the little brother of Brandon Stark. And if he can mock him, if he can torture him, if he can betray him in the end and make him look a fool, he absolutely is going to do that.
3: I completely agree. I think that does drive Littlefinger. I think it is this drive for power, but it's a power driven in itself by this idea that I was always the little guy. Mm-hmm. His name is Littlefinger. I yeah. mean, that's his nickname, right? I know. Um, he is he's completely driven by the idea of everybody who looked down on me, underestimated me, thought I was unimportant, mm-hmm. mocked me. Maybe I'm gonna come back a hundredfold and I will show you all. And I'm gonna climb up to the highest seat of power and then just destroy from within. Yeah. And I, I do, I I completely agree that that is what drives him and makes him so dangerous.
0: Notable introductions in this chapter. Um, Magor's Holdfast is introduced. We hear about the boar for the first time. A mm. um, few characters, uh, Sir Boris Blount uh, is mentioned. And um, the introduction to the letter, you know, Ned's paper shield. <laughs> um, short, short-lived, though it is. Uh, yes. And uh, differences. Uh, this is all kind of framed differently in... The books or in the in the show. Uh, particularly with Renly. Uh just I think it was just sort of a con- an economy of space. Right. Um, you know, the show isn't sort of giving you a tour of Magar's hold fast, you know. It was it's just sort of Renley approaches him in the hallway and says, Uh, I should be king. Me. I, I you know, Stanis isn't a king, I am. Yeah, That's not exactly how Renly plays it in this particular, uh, you know, Renly, Renly gets him alone on the bridge and just says, look, I'm going to put a hundred swords in your hand. Here's what we need to do. He never says, Stannis isn't a king. I am. So that's, I think that's a pretty big difference for Renly. Yeah. Notable departure. Robert doesn't die, but th- these are Robert's last words, really. So we see Robert leave stage left, even though we don't find out that he he's actually dead until later.
3: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He <laughs> takes the milk of the poppy. Yeah. Says, Well, I dream and uh that's kind of where they leave him.
0: That's it. It's weird. It's like this guy was such a he's such a zero. <laughs> <laughs> like he's just such a non he just He's just like this bumbling drunken fool, yeah. Who isn't suited for the throne? He's such a zero, and yet when he's gone, that vacuum is enormous. Yes, everything is going to fall apart. You, you've got this zero of a father, father figure, but as soon as the father figure is gone, like everything else falls apart.
3: Yes, he was a terrible king, but he's there, right? He's the symbol of the kingdom um he gives at least some some sense of stability and unity well he he gives
0: off an aura of strength even if it's sort of his his legacy it's like there is that political power just to pretending that you're strong you know
3: and to anthony think about that i mean how often just using the united states as an example how often have we put military leaders in the presidency who had really no business being there, but they're elected because they're a warrior. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is yeah, the exactly epitome right. of like masculine strength, which is uh, indispensable to the presidency. This idea of masculine strength. It's as, better old, than a soldier? It is as
0: old as sin. It's like, who's going to be the leader of the tribe? Well, the tallest guy, yeah. that, that guy over there, he's taller So he's going to be leader. It really is this really primal, stupid thing, you know, that maybe people didn't think about it, but it's like, yeah, if you want to (laughs) be the guy whose
3: guts are spilling out and he still manages to stab the boar through the eye, he's very proud of that too, right? He's done. He says, I still got Uh him, Ned. I still got him. He took me, but I I made sure I got him and I want you to, you know, serve him at my funeral feast. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. Robert, right? Even in his dying breath. Hey, I was
0: strong. He's planning a party in his, with his final breath. They should have made him royal party planner. He would have been <laughs> magnificent.
4: FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu.
1: Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain, featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works.
4: Starring Hiroyuki Sonata from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the
1: mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Rick, how you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne in the cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there?
4: Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne was out uh, following a giant wagon train.
1: That, that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um,
4: actually she kind of left them to be raised by Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. Alright, while well, Rick is getting ready, Aaron and I are too. We're preparing to once again recommission The Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: And now Steve and I react to one of the most epic battle scenes in cinematic history. Here's my conversation about Home with comic Steve Osborne. I don't know if you could be persuaded to do this, but I wonder if you guys could resolve to watch a single episode before we record again.
2: Yeah, we won't watch any tonight because of trivia.
0: That's fine. That's fine. It's Because the only reason I'm bringing it up is that I think it will take a little bit of willpower to say no to episode 10 after the episode Mm 9. But if you're willing to do it, I do think that the conversation will be richer for it. Okay. So just keep that in mind. Um,
2: I, I could also lie to you.
0: Well, you, you definitely could do that.
2: So we just, just agree on that.
0: <laughs> that. That you could lie to me.
2: Yeah. And that's as far as we need to go with that.
0: Let me just say, let me just say that I'm excited about what comes next. And I'm excited to get your take on it. And I don't want to shortchange it. Gotcha. All right. Okay. Um,
2: well, maybe if you didn't live in Ohio. I feel I'm, like I feel, I'm feel
0: working like on you, it, man.
2: I feel like you need to take some responsibility for this. You've been you've been doing this whole Midwest thing for a while. It, it was cute. You know, yeah. hey, look at this. It's a liberal guy who who enjoys fresh vegetables and he's living in Ohio. This is a hilarious romp. But at some point, you know, it's like we're on what what season are we on now? I feel like, yeah, we've seen this bit.
0: Well, I just remodeled my sunroom, and yeah, uh,
2: this, is, this is no one, no one's tuning in for this.
0: No, but I'm telling you that I think that before I remodeled the sunroom, I'd be like, "Yeah, no, just tell me when and where I'll meet you at the airport." But I'm just in, let me enjoy my sunroom for a while. And then I'm, I'm telling I'll... you, the
2: audience give two shits about your sunroom.
0: They should visit. They should. Really this is visit.
2: this is exactly what's. This is why this is when the show starts believing. That everything it does is interesting,
0: <laughs>
2: and this is what this one brings the show down. They're like, oh yeah, I don't no, know. Like, they're, like, they're like, yeah. in there. everyone's like, oh the sunroom, yeah. I have some
0: sage.
2: <laughs> they're like the sunroom. I like this episode when it was a treehouse.
0: This my sunroom is like the dorn of my house. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Somebody thinks this is a real important narrative.
0: Hey man, I tell you what, if I was gonna visit anywhere in Westeros. You know I'd visit Dorn.
2: You just want to get put in jail because you might want to see some boob.
0: I don't want to. I don't want to taste that boob poison though. It's because as soon as I look at those boobs, the poison kicks in.
2: That's it, man. Do
0: not, do
2: not <laughs> sleep on that boob poison. It's the real deal. Uh, all right, so here we go.
0: <clears throat> Steve, do you remember when Winnie the Pooh got himself stuck in a hole?
2: I don't know that I've seen all of the Winnie the Pooh cartoon canon, but I sure feel like I've seen him stuck in a hole, like like to the point where I'm like, is that every cartoon? <laughs>
0: every <laughs> every chapter, A.A. Milne, every <laughs> single chapter, <laughs> Winnie the Pooh gets stuck in a different hole.
2: Yeah, <laughs> learning nothing from the previous episode.
0: <laughs> so I kind of feel like... We found out why the Army of the Dead didn't incorporate Sam. Because they can't run? Well, these undead soldiers are just getting stuck in the hole in the the wall of the hardwood.
2: Yeah, yeah. so there's no way that Sam... I
0: feel like half of the episode was just watching one of these zombies in the hole. If Sam had been one of these zombies, it would have clogged the whole thing up, and none of them would have got through. Yeah, forget about
2: it. Just a bunch of zombies saying, oh, bother. (laughs)
0: I do like that they, they finally answered that mystery of why the zombies let Sam go. <laughs>
2: because no, what no. is it? The king of, of these White Walkers essentially just just rabbit.
0: Rabbit trying to push Pooh from the back.
2: <laughs> which was really one of the most sensual cartoons we'd ever seen growing up. Because he's just rabbit just negative the whole time, which I think is fascinating.
0: Absolutely negative.
2: And he- but poo is just like it's like the one thing he responds to
0: yeah man this episode was relentless it's a
2: real good one and so this is so
0: and the we weird are. thing about it is that i knew it was coming this is an episode i've rewatched a few times because it's it's just that good and every single time i watch it i think but when are we gonna get to hard home like that this is all, I remember that being sort of an epic battle scene. There's so much run up to it.
2: Right. Unlike the, the King's Landing siege, right? Mm-hmm. Which is all King's Landing. Battle at Hardhome feels like it's more epic and it takes longer than the siege of King's Landing.
0: There was all kinds of stuff. There was the Cersei and Kybern meeting in the, in the dungeon. Yeah, there's we the got, the Sansa and Theon interaction. There's yeah, then there's
2: uh, you've got Tyrion's getting some wine with with Danny, which is which just give me all that, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just so much that happens, and and then, it's like
2: all of it's good.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. So much is going on, and then finally, you just get hit like relentlessly in the forehead. <laughs>
2: what, With this That's what, Which just really took me because I'm into all these other little subplots and like each one mm-hmm. of them, I could have just watched a, a full episode of. And so that was a great job on their part. And then all of a sudden, now I'm on this epic battle that I just, I didn't, I didn't see it coming. Right. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I legitimately didn't see this coming and I, I, it was so good that all the things that I was like upset, I was leaving mm-hmm. and hoping to go back to, I completely forgot about.
0: Now you've seen a bit of zombie zombies on screen in your in your days, right? Oh yeah.
2: Probably more than I need.
0: So, what was your feeling about these zombies?
2: Um I almost think that the the fact that they were zombies was secondary. Okay. It was so well directed. So like so the fact that they're zombies adds to the just sort of the the, uh, the fact that they there are holes for them to eke through and there's mm. there's this relentlessness to it and you don't really have the time to go, oh my gosh, it's zombies again. Because it's just here it is. And mm. and the, the wreckage is so dramatic and the sense of urgency from everywhere is so is so well done. It you felt so present
0: that well, this you, is that, sort of the mass the first mass attack because we've seen them marching i mean we've right. seen them marching and marching and marching and then we also saw the sort of jojan pincushion episode right but that was just a couple zombies I
2: and mean, that was the first time we saw a little bit more like of this frenetic moving right mm-hmm. so it was kind of nice to get a glimpse of like you know these things can go pretty fast especially the skeletons <laughs> the skeletons man
0: they can move we talked that's, about it you're supposed the to muscle. send the skeletons through the hole first that's right. the, that's the thing Everybody, yeah. This is a fatal flaw of this episode.
2: That's why if they had gone to the toilet and turned Tywin into a, a white walker, <laughs> they could benefit from his tactics.
0: All right, let me ask you this. I can sometimes get a little bit weary of like a commander with a motivational speech, like before a big battle or whatever. Mm-hmm. So John giving his little motivational speech to the Wildlings. That could have gone bad in a number of ways, but I think it lasted just as long as it needed to. I don't feel like because if you, if it's too short, then it's like, oh, geez, you just changed their mind overnight. Right. right. You know, you've been fighting each other for 4,000 years and you were just able to Tony Robbins them into changing their mind.
2: Right. And this is, this is a group that is less bound by an oath that they took. It's more about an ideology.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think maybe another show might have painted them as this massive monolithic people. And so you just need one guy to change his mind. But I think they've done a good job of establishing like fens, not even the Wildlands, like the fens. And right. then you know th- these. There's no way you're going to get all of these people to agree. But your well, hope especially is because to,
2: there's already talk about how what a what a incredible feat it was that Mance was able to do what he did.
0: That's right. That's right. There was that moment where that the motherly Wildling lady she says goodbye to her children. Yeah. And you really have no sense yet that anything bad's going to happen because there's no hint that anything bad's going to happen. Right. But she's putting her kids in the boat, and she says, "I'm right behind you. I'll I'll be there soon." And immediately, I don't know if you had the sense, but immediately I thought, "Uh "Oh, yeah, no." They
2: don't normally say you don't normally say goodbye to kids, and then be like, "Okay, well, then." And then you know, four minutes later, well, I got a little seasick, but that was a fine (laughs) ride.
0: So, did you see that coming? Well,
2: (laughs) *Game of Thrones* has got me conditioned for peril. Right, right. The uh, so here's an interesting thing about her. I first I really enjoyed her so little screen time
0: yeah don't get attached
2: but man i think she uh i I think she made the most of every scene
0: maybe she has like a grand total of five minutes of screen time or whatever Mm -hmm. pretty memorable impact just for that short amount of time
2: well to the point where when she when she passes you're actually moved that's that's pretty, that, that's an economy of screen time. And I think that's a, a testament to the way she's written, directed, and, and how it's performed. And and Heather brought it up very, she because she's just not having the, the Dorn daughters or the, those, man, just none of it. I mean, you think, I don't like it. Man. Um, and so she used this character and this performance as a, as a juxtaposition. She's like, I believe this person is authentically. Yeah, badass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have seen very little of her, and I am upset that she's not on the show anymore.
0: I okay. So that that woman was great, and I really liked that you. you <laughs> I like that you used the respectful euphemism. She passes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how much. That's how much she had an effect on you. Yeah.
2: No, for sure.
0: Like you're actually. <laughs>
2: I'm showing respect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't,
0: don't even know this her woman's journey. name.
2: <laughs> no, cheap in her journey. It was important.
0: Yeah, no, I get it. I get it.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have no problem saying that Theon got his wiener cut off, but <laughs> this woman passed.
0: She, she passes. Uh, all right. So that's right. And, um, now, the giant's name was 1-1. Did you know that? Did not know that. <laughs> okay, it's spelled W-U-N, and then new word, W-U-N. And uh, as far as we know, 1-1 is like the last giant.
2: Why don't we, when a W and a U are together, just call it a triple U?
0: A triple U. Yeah,
2: so if I said triple U-N, then...
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just seems... You make some good points, Steve. I'm gonna take it to the academic community and we'll workshop that a little bit and I'll bring it back. I can't wait for the
2: the paper to be written. Triple U mm-hmm. exploring how we refer to Ws. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's some room. There's some room to to work in that in that area.
2: And I'm gonna start referring to just use as single use in solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to talk about the fact that it's really two Vs, but that's not uh, one battle at a time.
0: Yeah. All right. So I think that the thing that was most affecting for me was after this massive fight that just seemed like it was never going to end. John's on the boat, just kind of staring down the White Walker King.
2: By the way, you got a lot of boats this season, so I'm I'm kind of taken uh, by surprise yeah. that you have as many issues with this particular season when it's real boat
0: heavy. I like the boats, man. I love I love it. I I, I want to see them on the water. I like to see one one like walking waist deep in the ocean, yeah. like next to a boat. I just like. It. I mean, I would have liked it better if Tyrion wasn't in a box the entire trip. But you got so much boat,
2: and you're. I mean. Mm-hmm. Do you feel any different about this, uh, season five thus far compared
0: to you know? I do. I feel like it, I feel like it was it's unnecessarily derided. I I'm telling you, I'm I'm
2: I have you know. I think we've mentioned this before. I said so far with the Dorn, this is the season that has the most worst things
0: in it. Like this episode has zero Dorn, right? Right. And I think that that is maybe why it's you—it's un- almost universally hailed as like one of the top, people's top two or three episodes. Because I think it's like, okay, Dorn came before it, Dorn comes after it, and you're just so relieved that there's no Dorn. That you're like, yeah, fine, give <laughs> me Winnie the Pooh zombie, I, I will take it over Dorn.
2: <laughs> well, and that's what I think is interesting that we have, that this is considered one of the best episodes of the series in a season that is considered one of the worst. And Mm -hmm. I feel like how do those two things exist? You, it would have had to have been, I mean, again, there've been some episodes or moments in these episodes where I'm like, but overall I'm like, there's, we talked about a lot of really interesting things and about, what we're seeing with Littlefinger's progression, mm-hmm. um, Cersei's situation, and when the whole High Sparrow relationship—that's really interesting, and that's kind of you know that's not like anything we've really seen so far. So there's there's a lot to be said for this season in terms of what it's even if it doesn't cash in on it all, mm-hmm. what it's what it's creating is is highly compelling. And if you well, one sit of the great moments, snakes, I think,
0: yeah, I think one of the great moments. Like I'm always of the mind that an action adventure is only as good as the villain is compelling. That's always been my thing. And this show has lots of villains, but I think that the big baddie is supposed to be this, the white Walker King. which Um, We only seen twice. Yeah. And we know zero, almost zero about this guy. We don't know what motivates him. Like he's the anti-Magneto. Right. And yet, That scene where he's just staring down John, kind of waiting, like waiting for dramatic effect and raising his arms. And then you see all the dead rise and just stand there. Yeah, that was that could be one of the most memorable scenes of the show so far.
2: Right. Right and it's and what's so interesting because you're because you know with you know joffrey dies and tywin dies and we're like in the same way with Robert, like well who's the good that we're rooting for well, who's the bad that we're rooting and then like little finger starts to really show that he's yeah. manipulating all this stuff but then you kind of understand that if you juxtapose it and go what little finger is doing is damaging to some specific people for his own climb but then the night king shows up and goes you don't know what bad is because Littlefinger is just by comparison. If you're like, if this is one of our main baddies, well, yeah. To, to what end? What's he going to do? He's going to get a little title. Well, it's interesting that you put
0: those two together because I think I haven't thought of about those two side by side, but if you could, you could make the argument that everything that Littlefinger has done so far in the show is weakening the kingdom, right? You know, he's assassinating dudes He's causing strife between houses and everything that he's done so far has weakened the internal seven kingdoms to the extent that when the White Walkers do decide to march south,
2: they're all splintered.
0: They're all splintered. They have they have no strength left
2: there. And there's glimpses, right? There's a glimpse of like kind of with, you know, because we've already seen it with with the Wildlings and the Night's Watch saying, look, we're going to have to we're gonna, we, we, got, we got bigger fish to fry like they get it interesting that like john's the one that's leading it because he's kind of stepped out of it for a little bit and like the who would have thought that by virtue of the night's watch gives him the ability to have a little bit more bigger picture perspective because the night's watch is such a specific role once you step outside the walls you're more aware of, of what's at stake and the rules change i mean as far as we know i mean we know this night king is a king but I don't know how his uh, system of
0: government works,
2: or, or if well, there is. Well, we know one. he
0: he takes care of little babies.
2: Well, he turns babies into something. So so there's that there's that sense of like,
0: They're yeah, little incest yeah. babies. They sure. you know no one and
2: there's plenty to go harvest.
0: <laughs> Which is really why the night king wants. To come south. He's heard about right. all of the incest babies. He's like, man, this place is teeming with them. <laughs> the other big reveal this episode was that Sansa interrogates Theon and discovers that Bran and Rickon are alive. Have we seen them at all this season? They have not had one appearance this season. not that wild? It's a little bit wild, and I had to look it up to make sure, because I was like, wait. What it? Yeah, like, the
2: last time we saw them, they were, they were in like you know the uh, the bowels of a tree or whatever with.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, so we haven't seen them at all. no hordor this entire season.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and this is where you know Heather loves herself the brand brand narrative, and I don't think we've had this discussion. So I think I'll reveal this this truth because she insists that it's really interesting and i am not (laughs) as interested i mean i don't disinterested i think i I, it's just i'm this season for me is proving that like yeah we can live without it
0: (laughs) (laughs) so what's her stance on this
2: well she she really loves the brand narrative and them all so my challenge is going to be well you we've just went through eight episodes with no brand are you are you left wanting or have you forgotten
0: mm-hmm. you know what she's going to if if i was in her position i would say yeah just delete all of the dorn stuff give me yeah, yeah. give me brand instead and i'll be pretty happy
2: yeah no and you know there's an argument to be made that that's <laughs> that's the trade and it was a bad trade then and then arya's selling oysters i'm not quite sure what to do with all that
0: do you want okay uh, number one, are you a shellfish fan?
2: Yes, are well, m- let's define shellfish right because I think we I think shellfish gets uh, uh it's a term that's used more broadly than I think it it should be.
0: Are you a mollusk fan?
2: That's a better question. so our mollusks we're looking at oysters we're looking at clams
0: I do you also think a scallop would be a yeah. mollusk
2: yeah, yeah. i so I I am to a point
0: because my wife thinks it's like sucking down snot. That's mm-hmm. her feeling on it. I can't get enough. I mean, give me all the snot. I, right, I love it. See,
2: You 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 will you will you'll crush a, a plate of oysters.
0: I will crush a plate of oysters, but would I put vinegar on it? I don't know. What, what do you? How would you feel about or number one? How do you feel about oysters? Number two. How do you feel about vinegar?
2: Love oysters. I usually put a little uh, vinegar and those big old chunks of rock salt.
0: Okay. All right. So so this, you're all over that. You'd be. Uh-huh. You, okay.
2: Oh, on. yeah. And Heather's, you know, pretty lukewarm. She's she's kind of in that snot category, but she's discovered mm-hmm. that she likes the smaller, the ones that are a little more, you know, a little more tight,
0: uh-huh, uh-huh. less snotty. Le- yeah, less snotty.
2: Yeah. Yeah, less of a cold, more of, man, I've been working out in the dirt all day.
1: <laughs> Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community
4: loves it because it often leads to fun, fan-favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the
1: coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com
4: and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcasts on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback,
1: and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check
4: out support.baldmove.com for more info.
1: Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping.
0: I have a very half-baked literary theory. Okay. Okay. I want to run it past you. Sure. Okay. So I was reading this chapter. I don't know how many times i read this chapter, but I was reading this chapter last night and I thought, I think that there's a little nod to Dante's Inferno in this chapter. And so let me lay it on you.
3: Okay. I'm intrigued.
0: All right. So when Ned gets up, uh, if you're not familiar with Dante's Inferno, it's a, basically it's a medieval guy gets a tour of hell that's that's the that's the whole premise. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's pretty um, much it. <laughs> so dante he discovers a gate into hell in the wilderness, and then he like finds levels upon levels upon levels, and there's seven you know there's seven levels, and of course, how many times has Robert like cursed seven hells, right? Yes, so I first got this clue when he walks down the steps into the royal apartments. And it's like blazing hot. It's like, it is like there's two fireplaces going. The whole place glows red, and it's just insufferable heat. He can't, he can't do it. And I thought, oh, this guy's walking down. He opens the doors. There's like fiery stuff happening, and I thought, you know what, Makers Holdfast is a little bit like layers within layers like Ned has to cross one threshold and then he has to cross another threshold. And then there's like a, um, a dry moat. And then he has to go past a guard and a guard. And then he has to walk down steps. And I thought this is very kind of layers within layers. That reminds me of Dante's hole basically. Yeah. And then he gets down and he finds that his best friend is dying And they explain, well, it was a boar that did it, and immediately Robert says a devil, Uh and I thought, okay, I get it, I get it, and then, uh, then I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's more parallels here. So at that point, now you know you start to see these things, right? You start to say, ah, this is a little echo of a literary homage. Now I'm going to start like over-reading the text.
3: (laughs) Is there such a thing?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Right. (laughs) Yeah, so then I'm starting to see things that are probably pretty weak. But for instance, he has to pass three white cloaks, and three is yeah. a big a big deal in in the Inferno. It's a it, right. it, there's a there's symbolism of the threes in Dante's Inferno, and he and, and Ned notes it as significant. He sees three. He has to pass three white cloaks, and he no, he makes a note to himself. He's like, oh, geez, three, because that's the number that he's just dreamt of. And it sounds a little bit like ah, something weird's going to happen now. I, this doesn't feel right. I, I noticed the, the number three here, and it's and it signifies something to me. And then the last thing I was going to point out is that before Robert dies, he calls it a pig. Like he's like laughing at himself. He's like, "I can't believe I was killed by a pig." And that reminded me of Chaco because Chaco is he's like. A glutton. And so he's he's on that yeah. level of hell. And here we have Robert the glutton, and uh, he was killed by a pig. And then finally, I remembered that, why did Robert go out in the first place? He went out to find the white stag. Well, in English lore, so I'm moving from Italy to England now, but in English lore, the white stag represents the questing beast, and it represents sort of a knight's spiritual journey, but of course it can't be caught. So Robert can't catch the white stag. What does he catch? He catches a pig. And that's just exactly Robert. Wow. And, and the whole point to Dante's Inferno is that the life you live on the surface is exactly the life you're choosing to live in the pit yeah so Chaco, who's a glutton in real life, is going to be on the level of hell that's all about gluttony, and of course, I think that that's robert i think I think that's exactly Robert Robert's chosen to live a certain kind of life on the surface, and I'll read this one little part here. he says, A devil, the king husked, my own fault, too much wine, damn me to hell, ah. Uh- all right, so how often has he said hells in this book? He always says seven hells. When- this is the first time he's actually said it in the singular. Wow. Um, and so I thought, okay, maybe Martin knows what he's doing here. And then finally, and I think this is intentional too, he says, missed my thrust, which I think could be a sexual euphemism. Um, ah. He's never been able to hit the mark with Cersei.
3: Father, a ch- child, yeah. That's right
0: and this is his ultimate sin that he's you know he's he's so gluttonous that he's in whorehouses and whatnot he's always been missing his thrust the entire his entire life and so that's the kind of hell he's going to that is my that is my theory
3: i love it i am intrigued now i'm going to have to go back and reread the entire chapter That was not in my mindset uh, when I read through this, but I think you lay out a really, really good case for that. It would be, you know, you and I have talked about um, reader's interpretation versus author's intent, Mm -hmm. right? It would, however, be interesting uh, to maybe dig something up and see if Martin has ever said, right, Uh that he had these certain kind of literary themes in mind. But regardless, I think that that is compelling, uh, I think there is a lot of evidence for well, that Well, it's here.
0: one of those times where you're like, I guess this particular reading of the chapter kind of thrilled me. Yeah. And does the rest of it even matter? Like, do we even care what Martin thinks? Because it, it very no, well could we be don't. that he comes out and he says, uh, yeah, I've never read The Inferno.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and that might be the case, right? But it, it ultimately, to me, at least, your yeah. Ultimately, it's your interpretation, right? Yeah. And the meaning that you find in it. Um like we talked before on the podcast about his views of war and pacifism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is interesting, right. To think about what was in an author's mind. I told you I'm teaching Harry Potter this semester right. yeah. and we did an entire class just on alchemy and, um, you know, Carl Jung and, you know, how that really, really framed, uh, so much of what Rowling did, um, in, in her narrative, mm-hmm. But again, ultimately, it's what we take away from that. It's the meaning that we ascribe to it. And I love it. Uh, I love that interpretation. Again, I hadn't thought of that. I'm also wondering, too, um, You know, the, the different sins. You, know, you mentioned gluttony. Do you see evidence in here of other kind of um, sins that lead to a certain trajectory based mm. on what we know about characters? Do you find hints of that here beyond Robert? Mm. Like, you know, deception and uh, treachery mm. and um that's
0: a good question i mean betrayal is the worst right yeah and i think that we have right at the end of the chapter well maybe even is a theme i mean we know that i was going to say that we know that Littlefinger is betraying ned <laughs> like yeah like there are lots of betrayals as, going on know, here. as they speak Littlefinger is betraying ned um and betrayal is sort of the bottom of the pit but it could be that that's a larger theme that how do you best honor Robert's final wishes? You kind of have to betray him, don't you? Like yeah. you kind of have to like hear what he says, kind of understand what he means, do the opposite because that's the right thing to do despite Robert's wishes. Um, so Ned is in this really impossible place where, in order to honor the king's legacy, he has to betray the king, right? And that so that could be part that could be inter- Like at this point, I'm really looking for you know I'm really digging <laughs> trying to support my theory. But but if you read the Divine Comedy, betrayal is the worst. It's worse than gluttony. It's worse than deception. It's worse than anything. Yeah. Um, to to do what what Judas did. Uh, is is the worst possible thing you could do and and I think that that might be an overarching theme uh, for Ned's story arc
3: you see this across a lot of you know literary tales this idea of betrayal right no matter what else you do or what your characters or what your motivations are betrayal is always kind of portrayed right as like the worst possible thing you can do to somebody else mm. and i I think you're right if you look at you know, Ned's impossible situation, because he knows Robert, he knows that Robert doesn't have the full scope of information. (laughs) And that if Robert did have the full scope of information, his last wishes would be very different. So Ned has to think beyond,
0: Mm
3: -hmm. you know, Robert obviously doesn't know um, that Jeffrey is not his son. Therefore, I have to kind of go beyond this, even if it is not exactly what Robert told me to do um and and do the right thing right make the right decision Mm -hmm. and so going back to your first point ned you know is driven by what's right but in this moment he has to make certain calculations to to do the right thing beyond right what he's told to do by his king which Mm -hmm. itself is a betrayal you're right